0: I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today on episode 106, I'm going to talk to Douglas Arthur. Doug planted the church in in London, England in 1982. There he started Hope Worldwide Charity Organization and has until recently led the Boston Church of Christ. Listen today as he shares about the early days of Boston, how he started the London Church and Hope Worldwide, and what what makes him one of the funniest preachers to listen to. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Pam and I just got back last night from from spending the month of June in Flagstaff, Arizona. We're planting a church there, and we had a dress rehearsal worship service this last Sunday with 40 people in attendance. We were fired up. Brian and Abby Mackey are doing a fantastic job leading the planting. The activities, the prayer times. Every Saturday they organized a quote-unquote fall in love with Flagstaff event. The first Saturday we rode a gondola to 11,500 feet and prayed over northern Arizona. That was inspiring. The next weekend the team went camping and last Saturday the team had lunch in Sedona and prayed over that city. Pam and I were so happy to meet and invite a young couple that's come, come out to church twice and is now studying the Bible. We're just grateful to God to see him work in answer to our prayers. Please keep the mission team in your prayers. Contact me if you'd like to join. And please come to the official first service on September 12th. Today, I'm so happy to have Doug Arthur on the program. Doug has done so many things, it's impossible to cover them all. He's a former world sector leader during the 80s and 90s. He's planted and sent out countless churches around the British Commonwealth. He originated Hope Worldwide Charity Organization, and most recently, he led the Boston Church of Christ. Doug, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob, it's great to be here. It's fantastic to have you on the program. Doug, can you share how you became a Christian?
1: Yeah, you know, God had a hand in it in the early days. I went in uh, 1976 to Duke University as an undergraduate. And when they filled out the form, when I filled out the registration form, one of the boxes that they had was, which denomination are you? And they had a box called Church of Christ. And I grew (laughs) up in the Church of Christ. So I checked the box Church of Christ. Little did I know what impact that little check mark would have because the very semester that I was a freshman, a little church hired a campus minister. And he only got one reference. He only had one person to follow up on, and that was me. Now I was a long way from spiritual, and he chased me around for eight months. But eventually, I turned my heart over to the Lord. So that was the uh, that was the journey in
0: 1976. Wow, Duke, that's the Harvard of the South. It is. <laughs> okay. Now, did you go there for basketball, Doug? I know you're a basketball no, player. No, I, I didn't
1: know anything about Duke basketball. I just went there on academics, but I did end up playing some uh, JV basketball for them. And uh, playing in front of 5,000 fans in Cameron Indoor Stadium was a, a thrill that I, I won't soon forget. But right. um, it was fantastic.
0: I bet it was. I bet it was. Now, how did you enjoy Joyce get together?
1: Remarkably, my dad, Bob Gimple, um, came to Boston. We moved from Erie, Pennsylvania to Boston so that he could go to uh, Harvard School of Public Health. And we were part of the Church of Christ. And so we went and we stayed with the minister of this little Lexington Church of Christ. And when we pulled in the driveway, I was 14 years old, And there was a 13-year-old girl uh, playing four-square in the driveway. That was Joyce. Oh, my God! And I met her when I was in the ninth grade, and um, she was in the eighth grade. We're just finishing up. I spent three days here, and I went home to Pennsylvania and told my friends, I think I met my wife. (laughs) (laughs) And they laughed, and it took me eight years. And four different times she broke up with me, but I always persevered. And then we got married. And this year marks our 40th anniversary.
0: Oh, congratulations. Wow, that, that's perseverance. Absolutely. That was perseverance, <laughs> it was. But she was worth it. Okay, so you went to school at Duke and your, your family obviously is, was in Boston to, to go to right. school. Bob was going to school. What, what took you from Duke to Boston? How'd you end up there? Well, back.
1: I was, I was in Boston in high school and I went down to Duke to, to university and it was coming back after meeting the campus ministry, my freshman year, um, that started the ball rolling in 1977. And then again in 1978.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, can you tell me about those early years? I, I think that's such a, it seems like such a magical time what was it like to be a part of the boston church of christ in the late 70s
1: it was um it was fun (laughs) but (laughs) but it was the extreme we were we were definitely working hard i came home as a college student and i started a devotional in the summer of 78 um with my parents and and some other people joyce came my sister kim came And we started, I, we just started sharing a brother called John Walsh came up from Gainesville, Florida, and we led a Bible study together. It was, uh, it was an incredible time. And at the end of the summer, they decided, my dad decided to continue the Bible study on Friday nights, the devotional. And shortly, a few months later, um, Kip McKean interviewed and came and in 1979, you know, it was a time when campus ministries that had been sent out from crossroads were into traditional churches of Christ, were baptizing people, but the churches were erupting because there was old, uh, new wine in old wineskins, and there were two standards in the same church, and it just didn't work out very well, and so lots of people at that time were looking for adventure. I was, certainly the campus ministry that I was involved in at Duke um, as in, dissolved shortly thereafter. There were lots of people flooding to Boston to be trained and to go on adventures. And there were people being baptized uh, all the time. Mm. But it all happened in a tiny little church of Christ called the Lexington Church of Christ, which was the church that um, myself and Joyce and our families grew up in. And um, it was just amazing to see how God moved in incredible ways.
0: Now, did you have a hand in bringing Kip McKean to, to Boston?
1: Yeah, um, it was, we reached out to him because uh, we. my campus minister was a guy named Steve Pipkin. He came up and he spoke. And you know, the Little Lexington Church that I grew up in was about to close, but they decided, hey, let's take let's take a chance. And so <laughs> they um, we reached out, I worked with the leadership group at that time, the elders, and we reached out because we'd heard that Kip had an interest in coming to Boston. And he came in the spring and interviewed and then decided to come. Uh, he came the last day of May of 1979. And then various ones of us from North Carolina and other places came in that summer. That summer was when um, my wife, Joyce, got baptized. Uh, Lots of great things happened. Uh, It it was a really exciting time.
0: Wow. Now, let me just ask you this, because I I was baptized in 86. I mean, it was a crazy time, fun time, just like you said, so exciting, so much happening. Do you think that atmosphere can be replicated, or was it just a product of the times? Was it just the, the zeitgeist? What do you what do you how would you explain it?
1: In well, it's sort of it's funny because we had a very narrow focus at that time. I remember at that time when Kip came in June, he he was 20, he turned 25 and he preached a sermon entitled Turning a Quarter Century. And I thought, wow, that's a profound way to talk about your 25th birthday. <laughs> But we were so young that no one had any responsibilities. We all, everybody could pack up all their possessions, three or four people in one car. I mean, there was, there wasn't anything to do. I remember when my dad, Bob Gemple, was appointed an elder and he was 38 years old. He was 38. And I thought, he's near death, you know, so (laughs) far. And, and in the earliest days, our fellowship was restricted to very young people, <laughs> campus students, singles. I, I had a conversation with a brother a few years ago who I brought from Australia to London. The London church was about eight, six years old, seven years old. We had 1,000 members, wow. and of that 1,000 members, 80 were married. Wow. All the rest were singles or campus people. Oh my it gosh. was a it was a wild time, and so you know you didn't have to worry too much about uh, kids' kingdom or child care or even teen ministry much. I mean, it, it was exclusively focused on the youth, and I think it was a very receptive time. It was very exciting, but it was also, in some sense, a little more simplistic uh, than the world we um, face today. I. I we left Boston in 1982, and we returned, Joyce and I did, to Boston in 2007, 25 years later. But when we left, it was all young people under the age of 30. When we came back, there was everything from babies to great-grandparents in the church. And wow. so it's this is a much more complicated time, but I still think that the word is powerful, and people are searching for God. Right, right.
0: Now, can you tell me how? What were the steps from you? You came back from Duke. Uh, how did you get the call to lead the church to London, England? You know, it was quite remarkable. We had a little group called the Ministry Training
1: Program, and we would meet on Saturday mornings. and And one semester, we said, "Hey, what if we had a vision to try to win the whole world? Mm-hmm. What, what if we did it?" and And let's, let's just talk. And it was like a geography lesson and we all did it. And to be really honest, I chose London quickly because I wouldn't have to learn a new language. And and I was, I was one of the more mature guys in the group. So I quick put my hand up and uh, I, I, I did a study at that time. I didn't realize how impressive the British Commonwealth was and how you know at one point the sun never set on the british empire and how uh, particularly educationally the the remnants of that era were still there that in london an incredible number of international people came to be educated and so and london's the most cosmopolitan city one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world Mm -hmm. our first 100 baptisms in london had representatives from 70 different nations. I mean, we had people from everywhere. That's the way London is. And so when I realized, wow, you could send out people from to all over the world. And certainly in just the first few years, we sent nationals back to Nigeria, to India, to Singapore, to Indonesia, Australia, New Zealand, I mean, God was working in an incredible way to say nothing about what happened in the UK, but a combination of that global network of the British Commonwealth
0: and the common language um, made the choice really easy for me. Right. I just interviewed Chris Ogbenaya from yes. from Lagos, Nigeria, and he mentioned yeah. the team being sent out from London.
1: Yes. We, we had no money. One of my fo- most fond memories is we had no money to send the church to Lagos, but there are lots of Nigerians in London. So we jumped out of an airplane, we did a sponsored skydive, and um, we raised 25,000 pounds, which at that time was maybe $40,000 to send the team. But that was my one and only jumping out of a plane experience. But we were desperate to figure out how do we raise funds. So God worked in a great way. It was fun.
0: That's inspiring. That's great. Now. One of the things that that strikes me, Doug, is you've converted so many influential people. And so many influential people were converted, just like you mentioned, during that time, early years, both in Boston, but then also in London. Yes. How did that happen? Is there an explanation for that? Was there something intentional?
1: I think it was intentional. Um, And again, it was simplistic. And in a way, it was the easy part. I I hate to say that, but it was sort of like eating the icing uh, on the cake. Uh, the the London church started as the Central London Church of Christ and our primary focus was the campuses in London. And so you have this incredible con- collection of talented people uh, really from all over the world who uh, come there to study. And those people, many of those people became Christians. And you know, in the first year, I think 50 people were baptized and in the second year, maybe a hundred. But a majority of those were under the age of 30, many of them under the age of 25. And, um, and God worked in, a, in an awesome way, but, but we were all focused. The Lloyds, Jim and Tanya Lloyd and Joyce and I were the two couples, but also Doug Jacoby was there. You know, Doug was a student at King's College at that time. He'd just come from Harvard. I'd met Doug door knocking in my dorm at uh, Duke University, and he was he wanted to go on the mission team. You know, but God really worked uh, in an incredible way in terms of converting international leaders, many of whom went home uh, to pioneer works in their churches. But it was because we had a very, very vibrant campus ministry. I mean. So that I, I do think that that's a focus that as the church has matured sometimes we drifted away from mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think you can do that for a few years but over time you start to really struggle um, for young leadership and and people who are who are very capable of doing great things for God.
0: I can think of a few people Mark and Nadine Templar yes um, I, Nadine I, was, became, I was talking a Christian. yeah I was talking to her and she said that when they led the, the Bangalore church, they were the oldest on the team. And he, I think Mark was 24 at the time.
1: Right. <laughs> the Bangaloonies. That's what we call them. The Bangaloonies. And Mark and Nadine were, uh, they are and were heroic. They, yeah. that, that was incredible. Mohan Nanjindan went, he wasn't married to Helen yet, but they were there and God blessed them in an incredible way.
0: All right. John louis I, I mean, just so many people. Um, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive. Now, Let's talk about another thing that happened during during that time. You came up with the idea of Hope Worldwide, which is a, just a massive charity organization that literally is worldwide today. Right. Can you explain the inception? What happened? How did it how did it come about? Yeah, you know, I got <laughs> I
1: get credit sometimes for that because I preached a sermon uh, that that was very instrumental in establishing that, but it actually was some of the young converts who came to me with the scriptures and said, you know, looks like Jesus spent a lot of time helping poor people. What do we do to help poor people? And I I said, "Um, not very much. (laughs) 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 And we studied the scriptures together, and it was so compelling, so obvious, it jumped off the page. And in 1987, I preached a sermon at a Boston Mission Seminar, which was a a a, a real contortion of the title, right? The title was born of water and the spirit. (laughs) What's that about? Which has nothing to do with the poor, I think. But um, I took the opportunity because I was so excited about what I'd learned uh, in the scriptures. And, you know, it, it was an incredible testimony to the hearts of the fellowship. We'd had an event uh, in London where we followed the scriptures that admonished us to sell our possessions and give to the poor. We had a Sunday where everybody brought their possessions. We loaded the stage. This was before eBay or Craigslist or anything <laughs> like that. But we brought all of our possessions and we sold it and we get, and, and we gave the money to the poor. We were helping with some homeless situations. But God really used it because when I preached at the conference, the Brotherhood repented in biblical proportion. I mean, people said, obviously, this is what the Bible says, and clearly, we've not been doing it. And very shortly after that, um, hope worldwide was established. Originally, we called it love, let our vision expand. But when the Gempels took responsibility for it, uh, Bob Gimbel didn't want his wife to be the love lady. So they got rid of the (laughs) name love, and they called it hope instead. So it was, it was really um, inspiring. And to me, I had a blessing, and opportunity. I actually got to hear that message again for the first time in 30 years. It's, on, it's now on the archives on Disciples Today, but somebody found uh, one of those old copies. And, um, but God used that message. That was a clear moment where when the call came, the Christians responded. It was really cool
0: how does that make you feel when you see the fruit of that the the i think about the the leper, leper colonies in in india i mean just so many programs the relief efforts what goes through your it, mind when you think okay i was a part of that i was you know it's it's really humbling and and i
1: don't take credit for i mean i take credit for giving a speech which didn't follow the topic i was assigned <laughs> <laughs> other than that and and you know, when I heard the message, I thought, well, that was that was a good, that was a good message. But but that's not that hard to do a good message. What what's hard is to accomplish all the things. But you know, a few years ago, I got a chance to go back to the village of hope. And I remember the first time I went through that leper colony in New Delhi with some friends. And I came home, we prayed, and I just wept. I I, I thought, gosh, there were a thousand leper families, a thousand families in one leper colony, the largest leper colony in the world. And, you know, our hearts were broken and we tried to figure out what to do. And Frank Kim and some others helped us think things through. And we came up with a plan to just provide simple homes, brick homes, not independent, but two or three homes together with one bathroom to share. And, you know, I went back after 25 years and saw the Village of Hope, which was a mud slum that was just demoralizing. Now, there's no mud. (laughs) All the homes, we built one-story homes. They built other brick homes on top of that. Now, the no one would go inside the colony. Now there's a magnet school for technology and everybody has to apply to come into the leper colony, but there's no more leprosy. We, we established clinics, treated the patients. They got better. It's generationally the, the leprosy has been wiped out. What was a group that had no jobs? Now everybody has jobs and to see what God could do With just the hearts of the disciples, I think a house costs like $1,200 or something. And people, churches, individuals, people were saying, I'll build one, I'll build one. And it's amazing how God worked. But that's totally inspiring. And that doesn't even talk about the hospital in Cambodia, the incredible things there. I just believe God does have the poor on his heart. And when we tune in, he'll work with us in a powerful way.
0: That's amazing. I, I remember those times. It was so exciting. And I remember the, the Kingdom News Network videos that were sent out giving updates. Absolutely yes. uh, awe-inspiring. Now, yes. did you did you have any any idea at the time, the kind of scope that, that that hope would take on? Did you kind of think, oh yeah, this is going to be amazing?
1: No. But what's interesting is when the fellowship is united, when people are together, then you start to hear things. Then then somebody like Mark Ottenweller says, My heart is for AIDS patients in in Africa. And, you know, Mark Ottenweller is like, he's like an apostle or something. (laughs) I always tell him if there really is only 144 places in heaven, 144,000, I know you've got one. (laughs) But, you know, there were just heroes who just laid down their life. Mark Aguirre did, Gary Jacques, all of these brothers and sisters rose up and it's amazing, but but I do think we need to be united to work together because we have w- wealthy countries and we have needy situations, and and we need to we need to work together and have a common vision. And then I think the generosity of the disciples and the power of God—it's it's, it's uh, unstoppable. It's it's absolutely incredible.
0: Absolutely, especially with the age of our our movement and the churches, people are coming into their wealthier years and right. middle age, and so there's a lot of resources compared to. Late 80s for sure. Exactly. Exactly. Now, let me just change the subject a little bit. Doug, you are one of the funniest preachers I've ever heard. I mean, I can't listen to your lessons without just cutting up and and you're convicting at the same time. Um, Where does that come from? I mean, is that natural or do you have to work on that? I mean, do you come up with like a joke book or something beforehand?
1: Never, never do I ever tell a joke, ever. Because I'm afraid it'll bomb. I'm afraid someone will have heard it. And I no—I don't ever tell jokes. I, I think I'm easily entertained myself. But, you know, I was an engineer. I went to Duke to study biomedical engineering, and I was super boring. I, I'm not kidding. My first Bible talk I ever led, <laughs> it was on campus at Duke, and it was entitled where will you go if you die tonight? <laughs> and, and honestly, honestly, the answer to that question was hell, okay? I mean, <laughs> it was the most uh, hellfire and brimstone message. I, I did all the talking. There was no discussion. There was no introductory question. There was no engagement. I talked for 20 minutes. It was so heavy. No one spoke. And when I finished, no one moved. They (laughs) sat there for 10 minutes without talking because it was so oppressive. It was horrible. One of the worst of all time. That was my first Bible talk. My first sermon... I was an engineer, I presented it like an engineer. It was dry, it was dull. I was up there and I could tell I'd completely lost the audience. My mother was in the audience. And you know how, if you do a really good job, then people come up and hug you and say, great job. And that was terrific. And this really meant a lot to me. No one spoke to me after this (laughs) message. The only one who did was my mother and she walked up and hugged me and she said, nobody does it like you do it. And I thought, (laughs) that that is not what I want to hear. Do not say that to me. (laughs) She was trying to be complimentary, but I understood what that meant. So interestingly, at that point, I decided I've got to repent. I, I, I got to get more out of myself and more animated. And Steve Johnson was in Boston at the time and ran a little group called the Pied Pipers and it was a little children's theater group that had no costume, no props or anything. You had to just make it up, and you had to entertain two-year-olds and three-year-olds, and so I joined that group with him as the director, which, you know, I was sort of the athlete basketball player. I didn't like this artsy stuff, right. but but I needed it, and and Steve was merciless as the director, and I became the big, bad wolf, and I learned <laughs> to be more expressive and get out of myself, and that little adventure uh, changed my messages dramatically, so, <laughs> but I was terrible. I I just was, I was pathetic, but, you know, I've devoted myself to learning, listening to my messages, figuring out what's good, what's not good, where, where are you getting lost, where is it having an impact, and and so I learned and grew, but but it didn't come naturally. Nobody did it like I did it. It was that's because nobody <laughs> who spoke like that ever got a chance to speak again. That's why. <laughs> well,
0: what would you say to to someone who's who who is working on their preaching? Maybe they come from that kind of a background or very introverted, but they 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 feel like they've got a message inside. Any tips? Any help that you'd give them or encouragement?
1: Yeah, you know, at the um, at the Beam Missions Foundation, the BMF. I mean, beammissions.org, uh, we've got a YouTube channel and I teach a class on how to preach, just how to do it from the beginning. And the thing about public speaking is that I learned is as an engineer, you can study it, you can learn it. Not everybody has the same gifts, but you can learn the, the foundational things, the elements that make it interesting and impacting and captivating. And But then I think also you've got to have the humility to listen to yourself. I mean, you need friends to give you input, but, but even the willingness to listen to yourself, you can, you can self-correct a whole lot of things, but most people hate the sound of their voice recorded. They don't like how they look, and so they avoid it. Right. but everybody else has to watch you. <laughs> everybody else has to see it. But if you'll do that, I, I think people, even who are not at all natural, like I was not at all natural, can learn how to communicate effectively.
0: That's great. Who, who were some of your early inspirations in terms of preaching? It's funny. There were three. I, <clears throat>
1: Kit McKean inspired me because he was so passionate. He was so intense. I remember one time at a Midwest seminar, he screamed. He was preaching with incredible intensity. And he and he said, and the humble will be exhausted. And <laughs> I burst out laughing. It was a group of about 3,000 people. I burst out laughing. No one else did. Everybody else was frozen. <laughs> but his intensity, his passion, I was Mr. Laidback, Mr. Chill. And I, so his passion was an upward call to me. There was a guy called Jerry Jones. He is a guy called Jerry Jones who was very structured. When he spoke, he had points and subpoints, and he followed along. and He was kind of folksy, but he was easy to listen to. But he was structured and ordered in a way that that appealed to me. And then there was another guy <clears throat> who was a preacher in the Church of Christ, and he's since passed away. But his name was Richard Rogers. And Richard Rogers, when he would preach a sermon you felt like you went to Disney World. He was taking you in an IMAX theater around the world to Thailand, back over here. He wasn't very structured and he never had much practical, but wow, he took you on an adventure. And so I thought, okay, I want to be able to take people on adventure, have passion, and still be organized. That that was sort of my three elements. But I, I use those guys as guides to help me with different components of my presentation.
0: That's a great, great plan. You, uh, aside from the, the humor that stands out about your preaching, you can also be tearful and emotional. Yes. I, I've seen you cry in your, your sermon and um, in your preaching. I remember you sharing about a, a, a man that you converted, I believe, in Philadelphia. He's African-American. and The Rev. Just, yeah, and it was just so touching, and it inspires me because I want to try to connect with people more emotionally. Where does that come from? I mean, you said you studied engineering. It um, yeah. doesn't seem to fit with that kind of a profile.
1: No, it, 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 it came from hardship, to be honest. Um, you know, <laughs> I've said this before, but I, I never, I had a pretty encouraging life in most ways. Um, life was pretty straightforward. There was a lot of victories, a lot of encouragement, a lot of things to be grateful for, a lot of things to be inspired about. All of my illustrations, all of my sermons always ended with, and we won, or they all lived happily ever after, or, you know, and then the incredible victory. And I thought that must be the best thing in the whole wide world. <clears throat> and then, oh, I don't know, around 2000 or so, we went through, I went through some personal challenges uh, and the, you know, the church went through some hard times and I got in touch with what it was like to be discouraged or downhearted or uh, feel defeated, which remarkably is absolutely normal. <laughs> how did I get to that stage before I understood that I don't really know but but God gave me then an insight into suffering and to difficulty and how it feels because I had very trite advice often before that No, just get fired up or right. God'll take care of it Jesus will fix it after right. a while you know and and some of these things were not helpful uh to people who were struggling or in the valley of the shadow of death you know that people who who were going through hard times. And I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I, I got in touch with some of that stuff. And I think my compassion grew. And that really, uh, that helped me. That helped me connect with people. You know, a few years ago, eight years ago, I got cancer. I had thyroid cancer. <clears throat> and I had a major surgery. They cut my neck, um, took out my thyroid. I had they took out 14 lymph nodes eight of them had cancer it was a big deal but I got up in front of the church in Boston and I shared the struggle the week before the surgery and you know it was really interesting the people who came to fellowship with me it it reminded me more of who was likely following Jesus it was people who were sick and and who've been going through difficult times and had tremendous challenges Before that, mostly the people who fellowship with me were the loud people or the athletic people or whatever. I mean, a certain personality type. But to see all of the sick and the lame and the downtrodden coming out of the pews just from everywhere, wow, that was a humbling reality that life is hard for a lot of people. And uh, I was not well in touch with that. But I think God's been gracious to me because he's helped me understand it. And he's also preserved my life. And so I'm grateful for that. But that was a big change for me to be the -the happy-go-lucky-all-the-time guy, (laughs) to be able to understand, hey, that's not everybody's experience. And so I I think that that's been helpful to me.
0: Are you cancer-free now or... I'm not
1: cancer free. They got 99% of it and it's growing slowly. So that's good. And you know, <laughs> at this point, you yes, ask, is this going to be the thing to get me? Probably not. <laughs> Probably this is going to be, I don't know. But I think God, I wanted it to all be gone. But I think God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So it keeps me humble and thoughtful. But I, but I I don't worry about it. And and the doctors are encouraging that the progression is very slow. And perhaps one day in the future, I'll have another surgery. But uh, other than that, I'm, I'm doing
0: well. That's great. And Doug, how old are you? 62. 62. Okay. And how do you feel? Do you feel like fine? Do you feel normal?
1: I feel great. Okay. There were no symptoms before or after, except that the surgery was a little disruptive. But no, I feel great. I'm playing basketball competitively and at a national level. It's fun. I mean, God's good. It's encouraging.
0: You're playing basketball at a national level?
1: Well, in the senior games, it's uh it's just a <clears throat> some old friends of mine said, Hey man, you know, there's a national tournament and we should qualify and we should go and I went a couple of years ago and we came third in the nation for my age bracket. So that was uh that was good. (laughs) I said, let's do it. So is is this like a
0: three on three tournament? Like the head up and three on three tournament.
1: There were there were two hundred and eighty participants in my age bracket, just sixty to sixty-five. I mean, it's thirteen thousand participants in this uh event, so of all different sports, but it's what old people do for fun.
0: Okay, now I just have to ask you this because I remember when you turned 40, that was yes. a big deal for you and you said, I just want you to know I can still dunk. Yes. Now, Doug, can you, can you still dunk at 62?
1: No, I can grab the rim, but I can't dunk it. I okay. can't. <laughs> okay. So you have to make some concession for age. I did have to. 44 was the end of dunking for me.
0: Oh, there you go. Okay. So let me ask you also, I remember you did like a 24-hour fundraiser with basketball. Yeah.
1: Hoops for Hope. Okay. We we raised money for the hospital. Phil Arsenault a youth and family minister in Boston. He said, we want to do something amazing. I said, like what? He said, let's play basketball for 24 hours and um, let's get people to sponsor us. And so we did it and we've done it now for about 12 years. We've raised about $800,000, most of which went to Hope Worldwide or the Sienok Hospital, the Cambodian Medical Clinic. So uh, it's amazing and uh, God's blessed it. That's amazing.
0: Okay. Looking looking back on your ministry career, there, there is a lot to look back on. What are you the most proud of? Hmm. I,
1: I think God has used us, me and Joyce, to help people, inspire people to serve him. And, and for whatever reason he's put me in a position to have an impact on aspiring young leaders. And I'm grateful for that. That that's, that's really encouraging to me. That's, it's fun. It's what I love to do. I, I realize as the years go by, they, you know, are more inclined to call me, sir. <laughs> but And I find that disorienting, but, um, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's really encouraging and, and I'm grateful for the early days in Boston. I'm grateful for the early times in, in London, uh, the times in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and the last 12 years here and see how God has really helped the church revive. And, um, and I'm excited about the future and the work I'm doing with the Beam Missions Foundation focusing exclusively on training the next generation of
0: leaders. Wow. Okay. If you could just go back, if you could jump into a time machine and set it for any time in your, in your lifetime, and you could just redo, start over, change anything, what would it be?
1: Um, I think it would be two things. If I, if I could do it over, sure. two things. One is I would spend more time talking with God and less time talking with people. (laughs) I love interacting with people, fellowship. I love it. I love being with people. Um, I love hanging out with you, doing this thing, whatever. (laughs) I'm encouraged. (laughs) I like interacting. I'm energized. My faith is built um, from interacting with people. Sometimes, much of the time, that would cause me to gravitate more towards that than the solitude of just spending time with the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so I I would address that imbalance. I would spend more time praying and less time talking. <laughs> Somebody said more time talking to God and less time talking to people. Mm-hmm. That if I had it to do over again, I would that's what I would correct uh, in a way that's what I would do differently. The other thing is in my early days in the ministry I gave too much advice. Um You know, there's a phrase about some people, often wrong, but never in doubt. (laughs) (laughs) I think in fairness, that was me as a young leader. I had opinions about too many things. And, you know, I went through an experience when you do that for a long time, then you start to have people come back and recount conversations that you had. Someone would say, do you remember what you told me? in 1993, and I have no idea in the world what I told somebody, and they recount sometimes with tears advice I gave, and perhaps it didn't work out well. Now, you know, you have the experience where people say, well, I heard you preach, and that changed my life, and they're being very complimentary of that, but there are also people who say, you told me this, and here's how it turned out, and and I realized that I was too opinionated in Areas of opinion. I mean, I think you should be opinionated about what the scriptures say. You should say it boldly. But, but in areas where it's quite subjective, I, I should have been more cautious and more thoughtful. And times when I felt sure I knew what was best, I see in hindsight, no, I didn't. And if I had it to do over again, I I would be less opinionated in some of these uh, more minor issues, mm. or you know how people conduct themselves in certain ways right but i got to a place where when someone said do you remember what you told me my heart would sink oh
0: i know i've had those kind of conversations (laughs) oh Oh, boy
1: no i don't and i can't remember it and it and in their mind it was a negative turning point in their life and i think oh uh, that wasn't good right I, i i'm really deeply sorry about that
0: right Just up until recently, you've been leading the Boston church. And I remember a couple of years ago at a conference in Panama, you were working on raising up a young man named Kevin Miller. I don't think he's as young as he once was, but um, can you tell me a little bit about that transition?
1: Yeah. You know, Kevin and Melissa um, had led our campus ministry in the Boston church for many years and then led the downtown ministry, which was a combination of campus singles and marrieds. But Kevin is a um, tremendously inspirational leader. He's full of faith and he's been very, very focused on raising people up into the ministry, training young leaders. And and through the years, he and Melissa have put literally dozens, maybe coming on 40 or more people into the ministry. Um, And a few years ago, and I knew for some time that from my perspective, the best person to step into the lead evangelist role would probably be Kevin, and then of course with Melissa, his wife. Um, And a few years ago, uh, it came to my attention uh, by way of, of some of my close elder friends that I was running in too many directions. I was going, I, I was working at the ICOC level. I was the chairman of the Evangelist Service Team. I was working on the Hope Advocates Team. I was leading the Family of Churches in New England. I was leading the Church in Boston. It was just so many. I was working with the B Missions Foundation. So the the brothers encouraged me to take a time out and to, to to really think through my priorities and what it is that I needed to focus on. And you know. God really blessed that time. I'm really grateful for that time. And in coming out, I, I knew I was going to have to cut some things back. But at that point, I decided I want to focus exclusively on training the next generation of leaders. And you know, then a few months later, a little more than a year later, Kevin and Melissa were selected by the elders to lead the congregation. And they are doing an excellent, excellent job. And they've stepped in. I think it's been a breath of fresh air. Kevin is 17 years younger than me, so it was a generational passing of the torch. He and Melissa have a group of young people, and even more young people are being attracted and coming and training and getting ready for incredible things in the future. They focused a lot on the campus downtown, and now we have a lot of emphasis on just converting and raising up people and having Boston be the kind of training center that it was perhaps much earlier. And uh, Kevin and Melissa have really stepped up and are doing a great job. And it's it's fun, it's gratifying, you know, and I watch him and I realize <clears throat> it's his first year doing it. And he has that sort of enthusiasm of your, this is my first time. And I thought, you know, this would have been like my 14th year uh, doing it. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and I see the passion that he brings and the intensity. And it's just refreshing. It's so encouraging. Mm. And so I'm I'm thrilled for them. I'm thrilled for the Boston Church. I'm thrilled for the young leaders who are aspiring to do things. And um, and the seasoned veterans like myself, which are hundreds of members of the Boston Church, they love this. They love to see passing the torch from generation to generation. Yeah.
0: I, I know that some great people have gone to Boston recently and it seems like it's attracting a lot of great people Stuart and Ashley Maines I know Brian and Christine yeah. Campbell and right. so it's it's very exciting I um, yeah I remember Kevin Miller doing a lesson in 2009 in Boston just cut my heart he's a great preacher and a great example yeah, yeah. absolutely so what what are your plans going forward I mean've you've, you've got a lot of lot of years ahead of you what you're not ready for the old folks home quite yet (laughs) i'm ready for
1: the old folks league but not the old folks home that's right um you know about 20 no about 30 years ago a fella called tom beam from oklahoma who was incredibly frugal um saved up all his life savings and when he passed and then his wife passed He left it all to the Boston Church, Um, millions of dollars to the Boston Church with the expressed direction to to use it for missions, global missions, because that's what he saw Boston as in the 80s and the 90s. We started, when I first came, the New England School of Missions, which is a program of training uh, for three years, uh, full-time, which we got going we started using bean money at the very beginning for a few of those students who were who were training to go to Europe. But then we replicated that program, uh, the Boston one. Then it was Bangalore, India. Then Australia. Then Nigeria. God has been expanding it. Now there are twelve schools in eight different countries on five continents, and wow. they are all training next generation leaders for the full-time ministry, and we're helping to fund those programs. This year, um, we started in Johannesburg, South Africa, but also in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Next year, we hope, by the grace of God, to see uh, possibly another opportunity perhaps in the Caribbean. There are some places in West Africa that are wide open. God has helped us establish a program in Moscow, in Manila, in Bangalore. We're going to we're going to split. You had Dinesh and Caroline George on the program. They're going to devote themselves full-time to training next generation. Chris and Relial Ogbanaya are going to devote themselves full-time to training next generation. God is working, and a lot of us who are in this stage of life realize I could continue to work in my local church, or I can be, be much more available to facilitate training, and God has opened doors. It's been an incredible blessing, you know, where our vision at BEAM is to be like John the Baptist. Mm. John the Baptist said, my my job is to make straight paths, to Mm. set things up for incredible things in the future, and that's what we're doing. You know, just a few months ago, we uh, developed the idea with uh, Camp Hope for Kids, a program called Chance of a Lifetime, And we realized that for a lot of young people, they don't see a path to be involved in international missions. And so we put together a program, which is so inspiring. (laughs) But when when someone is selected for chance of a lifetime, Then they spend three months at Camp Hope for Kids, kind of immersed. If you've been at camp before, you know that's just like a total immersion situation. They're helping inner city kids who have got terrible family circumstances, kingdom kids who are at teen camp, people who are doing leadership academy, but they're working together uh, for three months in Philadelphia. Then they're going to come for nine months of training in the New England School of Missions in Boston. And so they're going to be deployed to youth and family or campus ministries or singles ministries all around the church and training for nine months. And then when that's finished next May, they're going to go to one of our international schools of missions for a three-month missionary journey uh, outside the United States. Wow. And all of the funding has been raised for this. You know, we... (laughs) We put it out there. I said, okay, let's do it by faith. We put it out in January and we said, we're going to start in May. That's a very short window. Nobody had even heard of it. Within a matter of a few weeks, we had 40 applicants. We said, okay, <laughs> who were saying, here my, send me 15 months. This is going to be amazing. But we had to exclude the international people because of COVID and the travel restrictions. We said, okay, this year we can't do it but we had 15 outstanding candidates. We went back to the, the sponsors and said, we only had 10 applications, uh, 10 positions, but we need 15. They all said, let's find the money, let's do it. So now there are 15 people on chance of a lifetime They've just completed their first month in Philadelphia. and They're gonna be at our Global Connect Forum in Boston where we're bringing together the leaders from our schools of missions around the world uh, mission society directors are coming, next generation delegates in the ICOC are coming. Everybody's coming. And all we're talking about for three days, August 6th through the 9th, is training the next generation. That's that's all we're focused on. But God is opening doors and doing incredible things. And I've just been inspired. I, I feel like, you know, this was my this is my dream job. The, the, <laughs> this is this is an unbelievable blessing. I know that Tom Beam would be proud and encouraged. And, and now for the very first time ever, we're raising money outside of Tom's gift. And so now hundreds of thousands of dollars are coming already to help support schools of missions and build these programs. So far in the last 10 years, we've we've trained and, and established in the ministry about 150 um, full-time leaders that's from our schools of missions 150 mm. We are, are in serving in the ministry. We currently have about 250 training and by the year 2025, four years from now we want to see that number of 150 go to 500. Wow And we also are going to expand our schools from 12 to 20 around the world and God is working in some incredible ways. Our, our event in our, the, the BMF our Global Connect Forum in Boston is entitled, The Young Will See Visions, The Old Will Dream Dreams. Mm-hmm. And that's that we're bringing together the young and the old and, and we're gonna make clear, clean paths form, level paths, and God's gonna bless it. But we're, we're thrilled about it. And um, we're excited about Chance of a Lifetime. It's gonna be an annual thing. There'll be another round next year. And these scholarships, these fifteen scholarships, are funded. That you don't have to raise your own money. When they're accepted, they they get to go and they get a small stipend. You're going to be poor. It's kind of like joining the Peace Corps. Um, but wow, there's nothing more exhilarating. And when I see, when I see the look on the faces of the chance of a lifetime cohort, it reminds me a ton of what it was like when I moved to Boston back home to Boston in 1979. The, the sky's the limit. And, you know, not everybody will go in the full-time ministry, that's fine, but they're dreaming about what can I do for God? This is incredible. Right. So I'm super encouraged and I feel I feel so blessed to have been able to come back to Boston and train uh, and, and to get the church going again, the place where I trained. <laughs> but then after 14 years of leading that, well, 13 years of leading that, to be able to stay here in Boston and focus my attention on the beam missions foundation it's been incredible and if any of your listeners want to know it's beam b e a m missions.org you can see all the schools you can see the directors you can see the students you can see chance of a lifetime you can see what god's doing all over the world
0: if someone wanted to participate in the chance of a lifetime do they have to do they have to come from a disadvantaged background who's that who's eligible oh
1: no 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 no, any, anybody can do it. And they, it, it's, 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 they're going, we're going to provide opportunities from leaders. At this point, we have leaders from all across the country, many of whom just graduated college. They read this in January and they graduated in May. A couple have actually taken a year off of their college and a couple had graduated previously. But for many, it was what they did the, the 15 months after they finished school. But it's a it's going to be an annual program where people get a chance to really help the poor, work in a school of missions, and go overseas to see what God calls them to do.
0: Are you involved with what Sean Wooten is doing with Revive EE Eastern Europe? Yes,
1: yes. I'm, I'm helping Sean on his recruiting as well. And some of our Chance of a Lifetime people are going to go on to Revive EE uh, for their next adventure, their next missionary journey. But Sean and I are talking in contact weekly and uh, working together. He and Lena are doing an incredible thing with the chance with, with the revive E and that, you know, the idea that they put that team together, they had all of these criteria and it's gotta be yes, 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 yes. It was all yes. They decided to sell all their stuff and go and then COVID hit even harder and everything closed down. But you know, all but two of the people who finished that year signed up to go another year. I know. <laughs> I, I said, Sean, are they discouraged? There they were in Odessa, Ukraine, where 90% of the people could not speak English. So you're sharing your faith with nine out of 10, don't even know what you're talking about. And they are so inspired, they said, No, that's great. I think about a dozen people became Christians and they're doing amazing stuff. But yeah, Sean and I are working together. Particularly in the European effort.
0: Wow! So you must be traveling quite a bit. I, I know that there's that work in Manila and all over the world. What what's what's this mean for you?
1: <laughs> you know, I thought it was going to be. I, I I took the responsibility last February, and I thought, okay, I'm going to travel. I had a plane, a, a ticket booked to Manila. I got to go here, got to go there, and then COVID hit. So I started working on websites and chance of a lifetime and building a network. And we have, a, we have an event called Global Connect. Now we teach a class. I've taught a couple of classes for all 250 of the school Missions people, but we break them up into small groups so that somebody from Lagos is sitting there with somebody from Mexico City is sitting there, somebody from Boston and somebody from Moscow. And the next generation are getting to know each other the first semester we studied public speaking together and it was amazing. This last semester, all over the world, we had groups that worked on a look back of the last 40 years, our history as seen through the eyes of a 22 year old. That's and, and they've written up continental reports, sort of their take on our first 40 years and they're gonna present them at this meeting in um, August in Boston. So God's been knitting together the next generation of leaders through the schools of missions and through our Global Connect class that we do uh, every semester.
0: We've got people listening from around the world, Doug. If a person were interested and they heard that and they go, that's exactly what I wanna be a part of. I'd like to learn. Where would they go? How, how do they find out more about this?
1: Go to beammissions.org. Can you spell that? And B-E-A-M, missions.org. Okay. Beammissions.org and send us a note. There's a contact us. Anybody can go to beammissions.org and send a note uh, and we'll get it and we can follow up. But they can learn, they can sit there and watch. They can understand, well, where are the schools? What's the program? There's lots of videos on that website. They can see, hmm, where might God be calling me? What about chance of a lifetime? That's there. All of that stuff is there at beammissions.org.
0: Okay. I'd like to, do you mind if I just change the subject a little bit? Please. You've got a a pretty amazing mother, Pat Gemple. And I know she's, she and, and, um, your father who passed Bob were involved in hope. Can you, can you tell me about the influence a little bit that your mom had on you? I know that's a big discussion, but she's such a a powerful personality. Can you just tell me how she inspired you?
1: She, she is, you know, my mom, um, she gave me her white hair. So I appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, But uh, my mom, my mom is like a force of nature in some ways. Um, She's very determined when I was young, growing up, she would always look at me and say, "You could be the president. You can do anything you want." And I, and I was analytical enough to say, "That's extremely unlikely." What you're saying, right <laughs> I appreciate the uh, sentiment behind it, but I don't think that's true. <laughs> but you know, my mom was very determined, and although we didn't rate, we didn't grow up as devoted disciples she had a faith in God that was always a foundation. My parents got divorced when I was about 10 years old. And my mom then remarried Bob Gimple, who's my stepdad, and, and who functioned as my father for pretty much my whole life. Um, and of course, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but she was tremendously faithful. And she, she was strong-willed. I remember when I came home in 79, she was getting her MBA at Northeastern, and she was on the executive track at Arthur D. Little, a big consulting firm in Cambridge. And I, we were studying the Bible. We had devotionals, and I challenged her. I said, listen, you need to seek first the kingdom. She said, well, I'm so busy. I've got my MBA I'm taking while I'm working. I said, okay, but here's the question. You're going to graduate. She graduated number one in her class. You're going to graduate in a few months when you graduate, will you put as much time into your spiritual life as you put into your your professional life with your MBA? And I'll never forget, she was quiet, which doesn't happen that much. (laughs) She said, said, I know what the answer is supposed to be. (laughs) And she thought about it. And then she came back and said, yep, that's what I'm going to do. And you know, not only did she put in her secondary responsibility, ultimately, she and my dad quit their jobs, and went to serve the kingdom and started Hope Worldwide and took it to unbelievable heights. And, and she's still working. She's working behind the scenes at Camp Hope for Kids, raising money and getting volunteers and getting people. She's very, very determined. I feel blessed. You know, it's, it's challenging to have such a strong will. I mean, there's, sure, She'll definitely speak the truth to you, but I I feel really encouraged um, that she's my mom and I got a chance to uh, be influenced by her.
0: Right, right. Very impressive person. Well, it's been great to have this time together. What what final words? What advice would you give to someone, Doug, who wants to make this life count?
1: Yeah, you you got to dreaming is the most, you got to have a vision, you got to dream. And the world tries to squish that out of you. The world, the, even the church sometimes is not a place where you see a, a clear vision or a clear call. But but there are those special people. And if you want to feel that sense of, wow, uh, my life really made a difference. I, I think it comes from having faith and having a vision. How's God going to use me? I didn't know how god was going to use me i you just you just go every day and every week and every year thinking well what which doors are open and what what's he calling me to next and sometimes you may have to answer like my mom i know what the answer is supposed to be (laughs) (laughs) but 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 getting to a place and the other thing i would say is get around people who are dreaming i i saw just in the last month, what's happened with the chance of a lifetime group. The reason we put together schools of missions is because lots of people may get trained in one place or another, but if you don't have a cohort, if you don't have a group of people, right. peers who are dreaming like you and, and aspiring and and know how you feel and can call you higher and lift you up and and also humble you sometimes, it's not nearly the same. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like getting yourself in an environment whether it's chance of a lifetime or school admissions or some other church situation where you say wow this feels invigorating i feel blessed this is awesome that's really uh what we ought to aim for and my encouragement would be be, don't settle till you get there don't settle until you get to a place where you feel this is an environment that's stretching my faith
0: i love your optimism and your faithfulness towards the future you're 62. Any words for those in your own age, you know, middle age and beyond, that you would give to a person who's like, "Okay, are my best years over?"
1: Run through the tape. <laughs> <laughs> the weird thing, as you get older, you think, "Well, maybe this, you know," and like you forget a name or something, you think that's because I'm old. Then you see a young person forget. <laughs> okay, that's fine. We're fine. I, I, I think. I want to push through one of the craziest conversations I had with my mom about five years ago, she was working so hard on camp hope for kids. And I said, you know, you retired several years ago. You you can, you can lighten up a little bit. And she said, I just don't want my life to be wasted. And I said, do you not think you've built up any equity or anything (laughs) over 77 years? And she said, well, I just, I just want to have an impact. And and she wants to run through the tape. She wants to make it all the way through. And to me, I think I don't, I wanna I want to be encouraged. Yes, I enjoy my grandkids tremendously. There are certain blessings at this stage of life, which are awesome. But I think to still have that vision, hey, let's still do some good. And, and you know, there was an old song, I'm not as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. I mean, <laughs> this idea that, hey, let me, let me find some dreamers that are my age and let's do something. Right. We, we may not be able to, to move to Odessa, Ukraine, but we could fund somebody who could do that. Right. We, we can mentor somebody who's dreaming about doing great things for God. There's things that we can do. And I, I just feel when you get into that more mature phase to have the sense of, okay, I can't do everything, but there are some things I can do. And I wanna get around people who call me higher, who are dreaming dreams about what they're going to do. I met with Jeff Arias two days ago. He's he's retired. They sold their business. He's moving to Madrid, Spain, just to help the church, just because he wants to. Wow! And and the church has gone through some bumps, but he said, hey, we're moving there. He doesn't even speak Spanish. He's moving there because he wants to help the church in Madrid. And I thought, that's that's awesome. That's the heart.
0: I love stories like that. Well, Doug, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a blessing to be with you,
1: Rob. Thanks for all you do, and thanks for your heart to build. Just no nonsense, save souls, and build the kingdom. I love that about you. It's very inspiring. Thank you.
0: And I want to thank you for listening to the Rob Skinner podcast. I'm excited about something to invite you to, and that is the CLIMB Small Church Leadership Conference coming up in Dallas in December of this year. If you're leading in a small church, a small ministry, or a small group, You don't want to miss this event. And here's how you're going to benefit. Inspirational speakers, practical instruction. Each day is going to have a theme to help you and your ministry grow. Every class will give you the tools to revive your spirit and grow your ministry. The Materials are specifically focused to help you and your ministry. For example, on Friday, the program is dedicated to helping you as a leader revive, refresh, and restore the joy of your salvation. We're customizing a program to make 2022 your best year ever spiritually. Secondly, ministry growth and planning. The Saturday program will help you come up with a complete plan, a program, and curriculum for your ministry in 2022. You'll leave the confident, the conference with confidence that you have in your hands the material and the support you need to make 2022 your ministry's best year so far. Finally, just massive encouragement You're going to spend three days together with disciples, just like Doug mentioned, a cohort of people who are climbing the quote unquote same mountain as you. You'll make friends, you'll laugh and you'll learn every single day. That's December 2nd through 5th, 2021 in Dallas, Texas. You can find out more at robskinner.com. You can register. It's $150. It's going to be an amazing time. Go to robskinner.com and you'll find the information right there. If you're enjoying this podcast, hit the subscribe button and let your friends know about it and how to find it. Because my goal is to inspire you to make this life count, live a no regrets life and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.